Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, who has studied near-death experiences for more than 45 years and is one of the world's leading experts on their science and significance. He's the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond, co-author of Irreducible Mind and co-editor of The Handbook of Near-Death Experiences. Professor Grayson, welcome. Thank you, Zaza. I'm happy to be with you today. So far on this podcast, we've talked about human origins, climate change, personal philosophies, belief systems, life in the universe, and yet what we're going to be discussing today seems even more grand and somehow (laughs) also more intimate than any of these already very profound subjects. Maybe because the the final farewell is something we're unfortunately all going to have to go through. So we would really like to know, if possible, what's in store for us, if if anything at all. And near-death experiences might provide a window into this, um, what we call it, ultimate leap. Now, I do have to confess that I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to the afterlife in any shape or form. But, you know, on the other hand, I do like surprises. Um, Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm unbelievably excited for us to dig into the episode. Let's begin with your story. More than, what is it, 45 years ago, you were a young doctor training as a psychiatrist. And as I understand it, at the time, without any special interest in death or near-death experiences. However, that quickly changed. Why? Well, let me say first, Zaza, that I agree with you completely, that I am also a skeptic. Um, But I would like to be surprised. (laughs) And I have more reason to think so that we will now than when I started off. When I started off, as you said, I was a complete materialist. I was raised in a scientific household where the physical world was all there was. We never talked about anything spiritual or religious in my home. So I went through college and medical school with that materialistic mindset that what you see is what you get and death is the end. And that was fine with me. That wasn't a depressing fact. That's just the way life is. And then in one of my first weeks as a psychiatry intern in my training, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. And I went down to see her and she was unconscious. I could not arouse her. But her roommate was waiting to speak to me down the hall in another room. So I went down to the room and talked to the roommate for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then uh, we finished our conversation. I said goodbye to her. I went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. So we admitted her to the intensive care unit overnight and I went in to see her the next morning. At that time, she was uh, arousable, but still very sleepy. So I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of surprised me because I was pretty sure she was unconscious. So I said to her, gee, I thought you were asleep when I saw you last night. And she said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, I didn't know what to make of that. That made no sense at all to me. The only way she could have known that she could have seen me down the hall is if she had gotten out of her body and followed me down the hall. And that was clearly impossible. As far as I could tell, I was my body. So I was trying to figure out what's going on here. Is she just playing games with me? And then she saw I was confused and and then went on to tell me, about the conversation I had with her roommate, what the room looked like, where we were sitting, what we said. I was totally blown away. I couldn't imagine what was going on. I thought, well, maybe somebody's playing a trick on me. The nurses are are colluding with this patient, something. It didn't make sense, but I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it at that time. But I was there to deal with her, not me. So I had to push this into the back of my mind and focus on her suicidal thoughts and how to help her. I tried not to think about this because it was just it was just too confusing, too upsetting. But over the next several years, I heard several other accounts of my patients who had come close to death and seemed to leave their bodies and have other experiences. I assume since these were psychiatric patients that it was just part of their illness. And then in 1975, one of my colleagues at the university, Raymond Moody, published a book called Life After Life. 
in which he gave us the name near-death experience and told us what they were like. And I realized for the first time, this is not something that just happens to psychiatric patients. It happens to everybody. And I thought, well, I still can't make sense of this. But as a scientist, we don't run away from things we don't understand. We run towards them and try to make sense of them. So I started collecting cases and trying to understand what these are all about. And now a half century later, I'm still trying to understand it. Okay, first of all, I have to say that your upbringing was the complete opposite of mine. I was raised <laughs> as a Catholic, and then now I'm pretty much a materialist. But maybe at the end of this conversation, you're going to convert <laughs> me back. Um, let's see what happens. And number two, I wanted to ask that first patient of yours, not the first patient, but the first patient that experienced yes. an NDE, she had overdosed, you said. Yes. Was there no way for her roommate to tell her that she talked to you on the hallway? No, she was admitted to the intensive care unit where there are no telephones and no one is allowed in to visit except for uh, immediate family. And that's only during special visiting hour times. I so see. there's no way that her roommate could have commun communicated with her uh, before I saw her. Hmm. So when people go through these near-death experiences or NDEs, what kind of state are they in typically? Is it cardiac arrest? Is it coma or shock? Are they actually close to death or usually just very ill or injured? Well, unfortunately, it varies. I say unfortunately because that makes it hard to study. Uh, certainly, we have lots of cases of people whose hearts stopped. In fact, most of the research has been done with people in cardiac arrest when their hearts have stopped. Because that's the, the largest population we can gather a large number of and, and study. And they're also a less complicated population than people who have other ways of coming close to death. Uh, for example, by head trauma um, or systemic diseases, which have many more complicated physiological factors. So a lot of our research is done with people whose hearts have stopped. And we find that people whose hearts have stopped, about 10 to 20% of them will report a near-death experience. If you look at people who have, have heart attacks, but their hearts don't stop, mm -hmm. about 1% have near-death experiences. Wow. Now, we also see the same types of experiences in people whose hearts have not stopped as far as we know. For example, people who fall while they're climbing in the mountains and fall down the mountainside, or people who are in automobile accidents, but their hearts don't stop as far as we know, and yet they're sure they're going to die and they have a near-death experience. And we haven't found any way to differentiate the experiences of those whose hearts stopped from those who don't. But usually there's some sort of severe injury or illness involved, right? Yes, yes. You don't have an NDE if you have a cold or if you no. have a fever or, or whatever. It has to be no, severe. Yes. Is the brain still normally functioning, though, even if people have cardiac arrest or some sort of other injury? Is the brain still fine? Could, th could this be arising in the brain? Or are there also no. cases where people's brain actually kind of went silent right. and they still experienced an NDE? Right. You, you can't say the brain is fine. Uh, there's debate about how impaired the brain is. We have many decades of uh, studies with people who have heart attacks who have cardiac arrests, and we look at what's going on in their brain at that time. And within a matter of 10 seconds or so, you see changes in the brain waves showing a decrease in activity. And within 20 seconds or so, you tend to get a flat line, no activity at all. Now, this is just measuring the surface of the brain, the cortex, which of course is the part that we think is involved with, with um, consciousness. But it's very possible, in fact, likely, that deeper parts of the brain that we're not able to measure with the EEG are still active. Uh, it's unlikely, though, that those could have anything to do with the type of vivid experience that a near-death experience is. Right. Okay, so on the surface, the brain is kind of like flatlining. I'm sorry, I'm butchering the whole medical lexicon. But there might right. still be some activity deep down in the brain. Did I understand it correctly? Yes, yes. It's likely there's something going on deep down in the brain, but those parts of the brain are the brain are the parts that keep us breathing and our heart beating and keep us alive, keep us warm, but they are not capable of creating thoughts and feelings and perceptions. 
if we disregard the cultural aspect that can probably vary depending on yes. where the person is from, what are some of the common characteristics of an NDE? Well, people typically talk, say that uh, their thinking is faster and clearer than ever before. And this is surprising when a brain is not really functioning well. They also report a sense of overwhelming peace and well-being. And this is in the context of a close brush with death, which is usually frightening and painful. And as soon as they have the near-death experience, they're overwhelmed by the sense of everything's okay, I'm at peace. They also have unusual experiences, like a sense of leaving the physical body. Uh, they often have a review of their entire lives in a matter of seconds or portions of a second. And they may at times encounter other entities, or they seem to, which they may interpret as being deceased loved ones or deities. Now, I should say that we see the same types of near-death experiences reported around the world from people in different religions. And we have the same types of experiences reported from ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt, um, long before the Christian era, when people talk about the same types of near-death experiences. However, most near-death experiences say that there aren't any words to describe what happened to them. So then we researchers say, great, tell me about it. Uh, so we make them distort it by putting it into words. And they do that by using whatever metaphors come most easily to them, which often come from their religion or their culture. So an example of that is people all over the world will talk about a warm, loving being of light that makes them feel unconditionally loved. And people who are raised in, in Western cultures will often say that was God. People in Easter cultures will not say that. But even those from the West will say, I'm going to say God, so you know what I'm talking about, but it's not the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. If I may just interject with a bit of my own madness here, you described sure. that people are talking about a sense of peace. Um, they're describing um, when they're experiencing an NDE. If I think about it, the best moments of my life were always born out of kind of like spontaneity or excitement or even chaos. So if all of this is true, I'm a little bit unnerved, like an uh, eternal sense of calm and peace just sounds kind of monotonous and a little bit dull. <laughs> I absolutely hate meditating, for example. I guess I would just feel better if this is true, if people describe the experience more as an endless party where everybody's having fun and less as a <laughs> perpetual state of calm. Well, you're not alone in thinking that. Uh, certain philosophers like uh, John Fisher Martin have say that the idea of eternity would be uh, a horrible thing to have because people get so bored with life on this earth. Imagine having eternity. That would be terribly boring. Um, but people who have near-death experiences just laugh when we say that to them. They say, well, you, you just can't imagine what it was like. There's endless variety and yet I can't describe to you what really happened. I've read somewhere that although the majority of near-death experiences are described as peaceful and, and pleasant, like you said, distressing, scary NDEs do exist as well. Could you talk they, a, a little bit about those? Yes, they do. They do. Um, we have tried to look at what differentiates the pleasant from the unpleasant ones. And we can't predict who's going to have what type, age, gender, uh, religion, religiosity, the physiological events around the event do not determine whether you're going to have a nice or an, or an unpleasant NDE. Certainly, the type of life you lead uh, doesn't make a difference. It's not true that good people have blissful experiences and nasty people have, have unpleasant ones. And we, I mean, that's not surprising. We have um, writings from Christian saints over the centuries talking about the dark night of the soul, which is quite terrifying. And I've heard near-death experiences from people who were uh, convicted felons who have blissful near-death experiences. It's hard to know how common these unpleasant experiences are because people are reluctant to talk about them. Well, they think, oh, there must be something wrong with me if I have this experience, and they, they are less likely to share them. Most people who have studied this find that between 5 and 10% of people who have near-death experiences may be unpleasant. But of course, there may be more that we're just not hearing about. Okay, if we go back to the pleasant ones, what else are people saying? I know it's they keep saying that it's hard to put it into words, but when they do put it into words, what are they describing? What are they seeing? What are they experiencing? Well, they describe 
a sense of overwhelming peace and then leaving the physical body. They may hover for a while around the body and watch the resuscitation attempts. Uh, they may at some point get distracted and see this brilliant light and move toward the light or are drawn toward the light, which they often experience as a type of deity. And that often will lead them into a review of their entire lives. They may see other entities, which they may say are deceased loved ones. And at some point, they may come to a border or a point of no return beyond which they can't keep going and still come back to life. Mm -hmm. And they may then decide to come back or are told that they need to come back against their will because they have more work to do or something else like that. Told by who? The deity? Yes. I see. Or sometimes I've heard people say, I was sent back by my uncle. And this, this too, is, is a bit of a cultural difference. Most Westerners who are brought up in a culture of achievement say they were sent back because they had more work to do. They weren't finished here. With their job? Hopefully not. No. Well, it's, it's something important like I need to raise my children or I need to I help see. my father die or something like this. Okay. Right. That would be so depressing uh, if you're on, on the verge of the point right. of no return and then they tell yeah. you you have to do more accounting you have to go right. back and on the other hand right. you know we've, we've done some research with people in india yeah. raised in a hindu culture um and they often say i was sent back because there was a clerical error they took the wrong namran singh um and you know my, <laughs> my my indian colleagues tell me that's because they live so long under the british bureaucracy which is so bungling that they accept that's the way life is. Oh, wow. Even in uh, the great beyond, you cannot escape yes. <laughs> the clutches of bureaucracy. <laughs> All right. Now, a lot of scientific models have been proposed from psychological ones, for example, yes. that NDEs are sort of depersonalization or a hallucination to physiological models like uh, I read somewhere the lack of oxygen or they're right. caused by neurochemicals. Even though you're a trained doctor, of course, and a psychiatrist, you don't find any of them really satisfactory, if I understand it correctly. What, no. what made you consider the sort of, for lack of a better word, supernatural explanation a more convincing one? Well, I don't think I'm entertaining supernatural ideas, but let me say that I started off this field as a materialist and studying these things, sure that I was going to find some simple physiological explanation. And one by one over the years, over the decades, we've tested them. For example, with the idea of oxygen deprivation causing the NDEs. Uh, that does not seem to be the case. We know what oxygen deprivation does, and it's not at all an NDE. It makes people agitated, frightened, belligerent, confused, which is very unlike the calm, peaceful experience of the NDE. Furthermore, there have now been studies done in the UK and in the US that have actually measured the oxygen uh, content in people's brains as they are approaching death. And we find that people who have near-death experiences actually have better oxygen supply to the brain than people who don't report NDEs. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, the lack of oxygen is stopping people from having NDEs. It may be that lack of oxygen stops you from remembering them later on. So we're not really sure about the connection, but clearly lack of oxygen isn't causing near-death experiences. Likewise, you've looked at, at drugs given to people as they're approaching death. And generally speaking, the fewer drugs people are given, the more likely they are to report near-death experiences and the more elaborate the near-death experience is. We have tried to study um, chemicals that the brain produces to see whether they may be uh, producing sub hallucination. And that's much harder to study because we don't really know what drugs to look at or where in their brain to look at them. And unfortunately, most of these chemicals produced by the brain are produced for a very short period of time. So you don't have much time to, to look for them. What about it's, the so-called DMT, the, the chemical that hmm. makes people trip considerably and is pre present in the notorious ayahuasca? Is it really released in the brain when people are dying? And Well, you we're know, not sure of that, but we suspect it is. I see. It has been found in the brains of some animals. Um, and there are certainly some similarities between uh, experiences produced by DMT and more likely by ketamine and salvia and other, other 
hallucinogenic drugs and near-death experiences, but they're not the same. Um, we did a, a massive international study looking at different uh, drug experiences, more than 15,000 drug experiences, and comparing them to the accounts of near-death experiences. And there were a lot of basic similarities, but they weren't identical. Uh, people I know who have had both near-death experiences and drug experiences tell me that under ketamine, I saw heaven. In the near-death experience, I was in heaven. Hmm. And they say it's like, uh, being in combat and watching a movie about war. You may use the same words to describe what you're seeing and hearing, but nobody would confuse the two. And they say, likewise, there are only so many words we can use to describe such a bizarre experience as in near-death experiences. And they're the same words we often use for psychedelic experiences, but the experiences themselves are not the same. If we go back to, to all of these um physiological and psychological models, you're explaining that uh, you tested a lot of these models, but right. the results were less than convincing, right? Let me say that it's, it's much harder to test psychological models, uh, which to me are plausible, um, but we really don't have good measures for a lot of the psychological measures that we've been, have been proposed. And furthermore, if you're studying them, for example, like depersonalization, when someone is in their normal everyday state, that doesn't tell you what they were like when they were in the near-death state. So it's hard to look at what was going on psychologically at the time of the near-death event and have any, any reasonable conclusions. I will say though, that there are some features of the near-death experience that are very hard to reconcile with any type of materialistic explanation. All right, let's talk For about example, those. I, yeah. I said that many people will say they leave their bodies during a near-death experience. And some can describe things they saw and heard while they were uh, very definitely unconscious that were unexpected, couldn't be predicted, and yet the descriptions were very accurate. And it's hard to understand how they could know some of these things. For example, people report seeing that a nurse in the operating room had mismatched shoelaces. Or one fellow that I, that I knew in his mid-50s had a quadruple bypass operation where four vessels around his heart had to be replaced. And he said that he, he left his body during the operation and saw his surgeon flapping his arms like he was trying to, to fly. And he demonstrated this to me, put his arms on his, his hands on his chest and moved his, his arms around like he was a chicken trying to fly. Uh, I told him I didn't, that didn't make sense to me. I thought that was probably a hallucination because of the anesthesia. And he said, no, no, it wasn't. I really saw it. You can ask my surgeon. So I did. And the surgeon admitted to me that he does do that, that he's never seen any other surgeon do this, but he lets his assistant start the procedure while he's putting on his sterile gloves and gown. Then he walks into the operating room to supervise them. And he doesn't want to risk touching anything that's not sterile. So he puts his hands flat against his chest so he won't touch anything. And then he points things out to them using his elbows. And he demonstrated just the way the patient did. Now, I don't know how the patient knew about that, but he did. He said, I saw that. And we have many examples of this. One of my colleagues, uh, Jan Holden, studied about 100 cases of potentially verifiable out-of-body perceptions during near-death experiences. And she found that 92% of them were completely accurate. 6% were partially accurate, and only 1% was totally wrong. So the vast majority seemed to be accurate perceptions. And it's hard to reconcile that with a purely materialistic uh, explanation. Some of them may be lucky guesses. Some may be picking up clues from other things, but certainly not all of them. But let me give you a more surprising phenomenon in the NDE. Many experiences will say that they met deceased loved ones in their near-death experience. And that can be dismissed by wishful thinking or expectation. You know, you think you're going to die, so you want to be seen by your deceased mother, so you imagine that. But we have a number of well-documented cases now where people saw or claimed to see deceased individuals who were not yet known to have died. So that takes expectation off the table. So somebody they knew... 
Yes, Somebody but they didn't knew. know the person had died. I see. So before is, they went is... into operation or had an NDE or whatever happened, coma, they... Well, let me uh, give you, yeah, let me give you an example. A, a fellow in his, in his 20s um, was hospitalized with severe pneumonia, and he had respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe. And his main nurse who was working with him was about his age, a young, attractive woman. And one day she told him she was going to be taking the weekend off and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So she left, and while she was gone, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And at that time, he had a near-death experience, and he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene, and then he saw the nurse walking towards him, and he was stunned. He said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, Jack, you can't stay here with me. You need to go back. I want you to find my parents and tell them that I love them very much, and I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. When he later woke up in his hospital bed, he had a complete memory of this. And he started to tell the first nurse that came into his room, and she got very upset and left the room. It turned out that the nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday, and her parents surprised her with the gift of a red MGB. She jumped in the car, took off for a test drive, crashed into a telephone pole, and died a few hours before his near-death experience. Oh, my God. Now, there's no way he could have known or expected that she was going to die, and no way she, he could have known how she died, and yet she did. Uh, we have dozens and dozens of cases like this that are fairly well documented. And, in fact, they go back to ancient Rome. Pliny the Elder wrote about a case like this in the first century, so they're not a new phenomenon by any means. Did you talk to this man? Presu uh, you presume yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I knew him quite well. Yeah. How did this experience change his life? Oh, well, yes. Uh, actually, as a psychiatrist, that's the most important part to me of this experience, that it changes people's lives. And I've talked to people uh, in their 80s and 90s who had the experience as teenagers and said, I've never been the same. They almost always say that they are no longer afraid of death that no matter what they experience in the NDE, they realize that it's not something to be afraid of. Now, they also say that when I, when I first heard about this as a psychiatrist, I was worried, is this going to people, make people more suicidal? Because they want to go back to that special place. Right, right. right. <laughs> so I did a study then. Um, I interviewed people who came to the hospital with a suicide attempt, and I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt with those who didn't. And what I found was that those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal than those who didn't have a near-death experience. And when I asked them why, they said, well, I now realize that everything that happens in life has a meaning and a purpose. So the, the reasons that made me want to kill myself, I now know they're not things to run away from. They're things I'm supposed to learn from and grow from. They also said that if you're not afraid of dying, you're also not afraid of living. You can go ahead and take risks and enjoy life to the fullest because what's the worst that happens? You die. So they end up having a much more joyful life than they had before. They also say that they're much more spiritual than they were before the NDE. And I've heard this from people who are religious and from people who are atheists before the NDE. They still may not believe in a God, but they believe there is some part of them that survives uh, bodily death. Now, when they say they're they're spiritual, they don't mean they're more religious. In fact, they often become less devoted to any particular religion, but they feel more connected to other people, to nature, to the universe, to the divine. And this sense of connection makes them feel like they're part of something much greater than themselves. Now, that leads them to basically the golden rule, which is part of every religion we have. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Uh, for for you know, most of us, that's a guideline we're supposed to follow. But for the near-death experiencer, they experience it as a law of the universe, that when you hurt someone else, you hurt yourself too. Um, I've heard it compared to a hand. If you look at the fingers, they look like they're separate things. But if you look at the whole hand, you see they're really connected at the bottom. And you can't cut one without hurting the whole hand. Oof. That you dropped some wisdom on me right there, especially the part where where people say that 
they weren't afraid of death. They were afraid to live or something along those lines. Could you, could you repeat that part? Right. If you're not afraid of dying, then you're also not afraid of living. Exactly. All right. And people who so, have this experience yeah. tend to be much more engaged in life, much more outgoing, and much more caring about other people. They become much more altruistic. They do more volunteer things. Now, this, this can cause a lot of problems. If you can imagine one person in a family having a religious conversion and the rest of the family not, that's, that can cause a lot of problems in the family. In addition, people sometimes can't reconcile these new attitudes with their careers beforehand. Uh, example, I, I've known people who were career military officers or police officers who, after a near-death experience, uh, could not shoot, even in self-defense. They could not hurt someone else. And they, they had to change their careers. Wow. Um, they often go into some health, helping profession, uh, healthcare, uh, clergy, social work, teaching, something like this. I've also known people who were in very competitive businesses who came back saying it no longer makes sense to get ahead at someone else's expense. So they end up either changing the way they do their, their work or leaving the field entirely and going to some other profession. Fascinating. So it's even though NDEs are traumatic and scary, they're actually a blessing in disguise because what you're describing is that these people then lead better lives. So it's kind of not fair that most of us will not experience an NDE. <laughs> I'm turning it around and making it really egoistical and all about well, me. Why am I not yes, going to experience an NDE? That but doesn't mean we can't learn from what the near-death experiences tell us. Right, right. Back to my skeptical nature for a second. Yes. There were some NDE studies performed, I believe, where various objects were installed into the ceiling of the hospital and yes. could only be visible if you were floating underneath it. I guess the researchers were banking on the whole floating out of the right. body experience that you described earlier that is often part of an NDE. From what I've read, though, these studies haven't been very successful and, and people right. experiencing N NDEs haven't been able to identify these right. objects. Right. The, uh, the the targets are usually placed up, up above eye level and pointing upwards, so you can only see them if you're looking down from, from the ceiling. And there have been a total of six studies published uh, of this type of technique. Um, I did one at my university. Um, in mine, we used a, a laptop computer on top of a machine, and it was programmed. As soon as the, the patient went unconscious, someone pressed a button, turned it on, and it would run a randomly chosen image that was a moving, colorful image uh, for five minutes and then turn itself off. Um, in none of these studies, none of the six studies, did anybody claim to have left their bodies and seen the target. So it, it doesn't show that they can do it. It doesn't show they can't. It shows that they didn't experience anything like that. Now, when I talk about this to near-death experiencers, they just laugh. They say, if you're in a near-death condition, finding yourself out of your body for the first time, watching your body being uh, electrocuted and, and, and shocked back to life, are you going to look around for some irrelevant target you didn't know was there that has no meaning for you and try to remember that? They said it's like if you claimed that you had just been to France and I thought you were making it up. I asked you to prove it. And I said, all right, when you came back home, you went through a customs agent. What was the custom agent's name? Because it was right there on a name tag on his chest. And of course, you didn't see it. So therefore, I'm justified in saying you didn't really take that flight. You just imagined it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> but is there any other way that you could possibly do an experiment that would kind of quantify or measure in any way the veracity of a near-death experience? At the end of the day, these are all kind of like anecdotes, right? That's right. Uh, they're basically anecdotes. But in fact, most of science is anecdotes. You know, when you're talking about astronomy or paleontology or archaeology, you're talking about Piece of reports of what they saw and heard and felt. You can't do controlled experiments with other planets or with ancient artifacts. They're just they're there. And you can observe them and make and you know do tests on them, but you can't do experiments just to, to create them or not. And likewise, you can't 
give somebody a near-death experience and compare them with people you haven't given it to. It just, it just happens and you're stuck with that. It's also very difficult to look at way people have changed after the experience because you didn't study them before they changed. So we're really uh, doing this science with one hand tied behind our back. And there's really no way around that. All right, staying with the theme of skepticism, just a second longer. A while back, I hosted Professor Anil Seth on the pod. He's a very eminent British researcher yes, yes. of consciousness. His theory is that our brains are a sort of a prediction machine and that our conscious experience is an illusion created by this prediction machine to help us survive. In light of his theory, he likened death to anesthesia. In his book um, that I have right here, he wrote the following, and I was wondering if you could comment on it. All right. Where is it? Alrighty, here. Let me read his quote. And when life ends, consciousness will end too. When I think about this, I am transported back to my experience of anesthesia, to its oblivion, perhaps comforting, but oblivion nonetheless. The novelist Julian Barnes puts it perfectly. When the end of consciousness comes, there is nothing, really nothing, to be frightened of. Well, I, I agree with 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 uh, Anil Seth about the the brain being a prediction machine. Uh, it's designed to fill in the gaps we don't have information for. So it's plausible to think that when you have a near death experience, it may elaborate this elaborate ex event for you. But that doesn't explain how people can see things accurately. Uh, when they were unconscious, or how they can encounter what they think are deceased people who are not who are not known to be dead yet. There's just too many unknowns in the near-death experience to say that it's it's just the brain. Now, to say that all consciousness ends when the brain ends is not a scientific fact; it's a hypothesis. Uh, we have certainly correlations between the brain and the mind. Um, the brain being that three-pound mass of tissue in your head, and the mind being that part of you that thinks and feels and makes decisions. Certainly when you get intoxicated, you don't think very clearly. When you have a stroke or get hit on the head, that affects your thinking. So in everyday life, it looks as if the brain is creating the mind or is the mind in some way. But under extreme circumstances, that connection between brain and mind seems to break down like near-death experiences. And there are also other experiences as well that, that uh, have the brain going down and the mind continuing. Now, there's another way of thinking about the connection between mind and brain, and that's that the brain doesn't cause thoughts. It filters them, much the way a radio receiver will take radio waves from outside and transform them into sounds that you can understand. And the idea is that the brain can do the same thing. It takes thoughts from the mind and puts them into electrical signals the body can understand. This goes back to Hippocrates 2,000 years ago, who said that the brain is the interpreter of the mind. And there have been neuroscientists throughout the centuries who have tried to follow that train of thought. Now, it's really hard to follow this because they're, they're, they're metaphors saying the brain is, there's no, see, no physical filter in the brain, but there are uh, neurological pathways in the brain that limit thing, the input that comes in. For example, it starts with your eyes. We don't see all the wavelengths of life that are, of light that are out there. We don't see the infrared and the ultraviolet. We just see a small range of light that's important for our survival. The brain, like the rest of our bodies, evolved to help us survive in the physical world. So it lets in the information that's helpful to survive. In other words, to find food and shelter and a mate and keep warm and avoid predators. But it filters out anything that's irrelevant. Near-death experiences talk about seeing deceased loved ones and deities. That's not important for survival. In fact, it may get in the way of survival. So the brain normally filters out those things. And in fact, people have looked at what parts in the brain may be involved in this filtering process. And there are definite uh, paths that we are looking at that do, we know, alter the input coming into the brain. For example, right now we're talking. It's important for me to hear you. It's not that important for me to see you. So there's something called the, the uh, 
the temporal loop, the cortical temporal loop that will upgrade my auditory st stimulus and downgrade the visual stimulus so that I pay more attention to what I'm hearing and less to what I'm seeing. There's another uh, whole sequence of networks in the brain called the default mode network, which limits our thoughts only to what's important right now. So it's plausible that something in the brain will receive thoughts from outside, filter out those that are not important to survival and just let in those that are important. And that in a near-death event, when the brain started to fail, that filtering process breaks down and we have access to all this full range of consciousness. Now that of course raises the question of where is the, the mind if it's not in the brain, where is it? And I have no answer to that at all. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, I'm a clinician, I'm not a philosopher, I have no idea where there it is. In fact, some of my philosopher friends say, you can't ask where the mind is because it's a non-physical object. So it can't have a physical location. So, you know, we're, we're stuck with, with two unsolvable problems. If you think the mind and the brain are different things, you can't explain how they interact. If you think that the, the, the mind is what the brain does, we have no explanation for how chemical and electrical process in the brain can produce a thought or a feeling. They're just, we have the slightest idea how that happens. So either way, we're stuck with not understanding where our mind comes from. Wow. How does evolution then factor in? Or if we go even further, is there any evidence that animals experience NDEs as well? There is actually. Um, you know, we can't really interview animals. They don't talk to us, so we can't really know what they experience. But there are anecdotes of animals who have a near-death event being hit by a car or having a severe illness, and their behavior changes a great deal. They were very aggressive and, and uh, hostile towards other animals before that, and it became very loving and, and friendly after that. There are also reports of animals on their deathbeds being comatose and then suddenly becoming wide awake, looking around as if they're seeing something that their owners can't see, and they die. So I don't know, what do we make of these? These are just reports of people saying, this is what my animal did, and we have no way of, of verifying it. We also have many accounts from people who have near-death experiences who encounter in the NDE what they say are their deceased pets, which suggests, at least to them, that their deceased pets are still alive in some form, which means they must have some type of a non-physical part, whether you call it a mind or a soul or whatever. Here is a very naive, simple question. If we actually do possess anything resembling a soul, not a soul, but a consciousness that survives death, how come an illness of the brain or an injury has the ability to completely transform our personality, deeply transform who we are? Is it then that just this receiver is broken or do you have another explanation? Because these changes can be yeah. quite dramatic, right? Right. But I think you're right that, that it's when the brain is, is broken or failing, um, it, it's not able to transmit as well as it did before. For example, when your television is, is broken, you don't see the picture anymore. That doesn't mean the picture doesn't exist. It's still out there, but you're not able to see it anymore. So it's plausible that when the brain is on the fritz, so to speak, is, is failing, that changes you. I have you here, so I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what do you personally think is really going on? Where is this receiving coming from? Where is this what is this consciousness that is floating about? What's going on here? I'm sorry, but I do uh, have to push and ask a little bit. Sure, Zaza, I actually have no idea. Okay. You know, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a theologian. I'm not even interested in those questions. I'm interested in the experience itself and how it changes people's lives. I will say that when I started doing this research a half century ago, I was pretty sure that death is the end and there is no consciousness beside the brain. And now I, I'm not sure what's going on. It's certainly plausible to me now, based on everything I've seen and heard, that some part of us does continue after the brain dies. But I have no idea what that is or what condition it's in. Most near-death experiences will say 
what they experienced in the quote afterlife, the other realm, but they will say that isn't what's really like. I'm just putting it into words with this, which distorts it so I can get across to you what, what it was like. But if they're right about that, then we have no way of understanding what it's going to be like for us. Our brains are too simple to grasp what it's going to be like for us when we die. So I think, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to survive or not, but if I do, I'm pretty sure it's not something I can imagine now. How do your colleagues kind of view your pursuits and your research in near-death experiences? Are any eyebrows raised when you have a of conference? Of course. Or are attitudes it's, changing? It's, it's changed a lot over the past few decades. When we first started talking about near-death experiences to medical conventions in the 1980s, there would be a polite silence in the audience. And now when we talk to the same audiences about near-death experiences, we often have several near-death experiencers or in the audience among doctors saying, let me tell you about my NDE. There have been some studies now done in Brazil, in Scotland, and in the U.S. surveying scientists about their thoughts about mind and brain. And about 50% in all three cultures say they don't think the mind and the brain are the same thing. And 50% say, yes, we do think they are. But I think that's a great change from where you would have been decades ago. I think there's more openness now to thinking that we don't have all the answers. And that the idea that the mind is what the brain does is just too simplistic to explain what's really going on. I noticed you're using the word mind, not soul. Is that because soul is very charged? I, I don't even know what a soul is. Um, I can define mind as that part of us that has thoughts, that thinks and feels and perceives and makes decisions. Um, but soul involves all sorts of religious concepts that I don't really know about. Have you become slightly more spiritual or religious because of your study of NDEs and talking to these people who have experienced um, them? I think I probably am. You know, it's, it's hard for me to say what it was like spiritually before that because I had no concept of spirituality before that. But I certainly feel much more connected to other people and to the universe uh, than I did before. I feel like I'm part of something greater than myself. Now, if you asked me before I started doing this research, I might have said the same thing. I might have said, yes, I'm part of this great scientific endeavor, something much greater than myself. I'm part of this culture. So I'm not sure if there's a real difference. We're nearing the end, no pun intended. If I can ask you something a bit more personal, being in such sure. proximity to these experiences and for so long, have they in any way affected your fear of death if you had one prior? Well, I no, I would never was afraid of death beforehand. Um, I just thought that was the end and there'd be nothingness, so there's nothing to be afraid of. And now I think that there is probably something, I'm not sure, but there may be something, but I still think it's not something to be afraid of. I'll tell you though, that has made me much more comfortable with not knowing the answers. When I started doing this work, uh, when I was in my 20s, I, I was convinced that science would have all the answers, and I was uncomfortable when we didn't know the answer to something. And now I'm pretty well convinced that we don't really, at this point, have the language to understand the questions, to even to ask the right questions. So I'm happy knowing that, um, at least at this point in time, we're just not going to have the answers, and that's okay. It may be, and I hope, that in another couple hundred years, we'll have a better science and a better vocabulary and be able to understand them better. But for now, I think uh, it's beyond our understanding. Final and perhaps most important question, Professor. What can near-death experiences teach us about how to lead our lives while we are alive? I think the bottom line for many near-death experiencers is that we are all interconnected and that when you hurt other people, you end up hurting yourself. And when you help other people, you end up helping yourself as well. And that the way to live a more meaningful and purposeful life is to treat other people as if we love them all. Whew, okay, this was absolutely uh, outstanding. I don't know if I'm completely convinced, but I have to tell you something. I'm a huge hypochondriac always have been. And um, 
this helped me calm down a little bit. Last question before I let you go. I, it just popped into my head. There have been some, I think some of your colleagues are doing some studies on past lives, right? And yes. then kids remembering them. What do you think about that? I think that there are many examples now of young children, these are preschool children who have not had any indoctrination, who seem to know details about a past life. And more than just knowing them, they really identify with them. Um, I'm not convinced that reincarnation is the best explanation for these. But I think there is something going on that we don't understand yet. Could these be connected to NDEs in any way that you can think of right now? Um, only in the most loose terms, that there's something here about the human mind that we don't understand. Okay, <laughs> perfect. You said reincarnation is not the best explanation. What would be a better explanation? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are several that have been put forward um, that somehow a deceased entity is is possessing the child. Um, these are all just speculations. They're all uh, hypothetical, and I don't think there's any way to, of proving or disproving any of them. Your book is on the way to me, and I'm going to read it, and then I hope in the future we can do this again. Where can people actually um, purchase your books? Um, it's available from um, most bookstores, most online bookshops. Uh, my website, www.brucegrayson.com, -E has links to most uh, booksellers where you can purchase the book. It's available in English and in German, and in about 20 other languages. Okay, fantastic. Uh, do you have any social media where people can follow your work, see what you're up to? Um, uh, no, I don't, just through my website. All right, perfect. Thank you so much, Professor Grayson. This was amazing. I hope we get thank to you, do this Sarah. again. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening. First and foremost, a massive, massive thank you to my producers, Lorenzo Jurechuk, Carmen, Veronica, Mila, and Taichi, you legends rock. Without you, this podcast would not have been possible at all. Thank you so much. For the rest of you, if you enjoyed listening to the episode, please follow and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And of course, if you'd like to become a patron as well, go to Patreon, type smart cookies in there, and become one. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.